As Toni Morrison has put it, the destiny of the 21st century will be shaped by the possibility or collapse of a shareable world. Welcome to our podcast, where we explore the history, theory, and practice of democratic socialism with our guide, Big Mike. What can we learn from the past to help us create a better, more shareable world in the future? Welcome back, everybody. Onward and upward. We're in a bit of a sequence. Um, so the last two times we've been talking about what you actually in the last uh, discussion we recorded called a kind of syllabus for a democratic socialist way of thinking and looking a bit at the Western religious tradition two episodes ago. And then this last episode, uh, beginning to talk about the philosophical tradition in the West with a large focus on Plato. And then we moved a bit to Rome and the distinction between natural law and human law. Right. Um, and I think the plan was to pick up on that trajectory. Yeah, we're going to, I want to start, at least start talking about um, Thomas More and his book, Utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the important things to reflect on in putting together this history of what I want to think of as a kind of um, social democratic, democratic socialist uh, culture with its antecedents, with its historical antecedents, uh-huh. is to trace the, the antecedents. I think it's very important. Um, the ideas of socialism, democratic socialism or social democracy, these ideas didn't appear all of a sudden in the middle of the 19th century. They're all there in the past, and the fact that they're there in the past provides us with a way of looking at the history uh, of democratic socialism in a new perspective, because it is not just an answer to the problems we face today. One of the things that, for example, uh, I think we lose sight of, especially today in the electoral cycle that we're caught in, uh, is that these ideas that being, that are being proposed, which for the most part are not anyway socialist to begin with, but for the most part, these ideas are ancient ideas. Mm. They're not ideas that come out of the minds of one or another um, candidate or, or, or political staff uh, in, re- in, in response to immediate issues. These are responses with an historical depth to historical problems. And I, and I think that's very important for us to keep in mind. Until now, we've been talking about the elements of different traditions. As you said, the religious tradition, the philosophical tradition. Um, one of the things that becomes very apparent when you start looking at the context in which St. Thomas More wrote his Utopia is that the world had changed, and it was that change in the world which, from which there never was going to be any going back mm. that, uh, that brought about a radical new way of thinking, of which his book is the first and one of the most important 
examples. Now, what do I mean by a radical, a radically different world? There are several components to this. Number one, Thomas More lives from 1478 to 1535. The 15th century, the 1400s, uh, witnessed two really profound shifts in the way the world was put together from the perspective of Europeans, particularly European intellectuals, uh, ruling classes, and so forth. One was that it was the beginning of the age of exploration. Mm. Now, you know, we kind of think of that in a rather in a popular way, right? We think of it as you know, Columbus sails the ocean blue and discovers the Americas, and so forth. What we don't pay enough attention to outside of university classes, what we don't pay enough attention to is the impact that the world of that the, the growth of exploration had on the intellectual life of Europe itself. One of the things that it certainly did was bring Europeans into contact with radically different kinds of societies and cultures that they'd never encountered before. Right. Uh, so, you know, Vasco da Gama, the Portuguese explorer who reaches India in the 1470s, something like that. The first Russian to get to India was in the 1480s. Hmm. Um, Columbus comes to America in the 1490s. Very rapid when you think about it. There had been earlier travelers, but these earlier travelers, uh, with the possible exception of Marco Polo, about whom some people doubt even his existence, uh, with the possible exception of Marco Polo, most of the early travelers were really very isolated individuals who may have come back with stories, mm. but they didn't write books. They didn't have the impact on European culture that the, that the age of exploration did. The people who went in the age of exploration either went with whole ships of people, right, who were merchants and so forth, so you had more than one person. But more than that, they would write books when they got back. There's a, a very voluminous literature of travelers from the 15th century uh, all over the world, and as the world expanded in its... Uh, in, in, in the European knowledge, these travelers traveled further and further. So that was very important. It, 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 it told Europeans that there was a different kind of society than just European society, and that there were different societies than Christian societies. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. And of course, the other very vital element, the one we do pay more attention to, is the uh, decline of feudalism and the emergence of capitalism. And capitalism is, of course, um, beginning with its, uh, in its merchant form in Florence in the, in the um, very, very end of the 13th and uh, of the 14th and in the 13th, 15th century. Uh, capitalism was a new kind of society. So not only is Europe learning about other societies, but within the body of politic of Europe itself, a new kind of society mm -hmm. is emerging. And as Marx will point out in the 19th century, intellectually, culturally perhaps, the most important thing about capitalism was that it was now possible to see the way the system worked. Yeah. You became aware of the system. Why do I say that? 
because along with capitalism came the Enlightenment and before that the Renaissance. And before the Renaissance, you had a, an all-encompassing, dominant, ideological perspective on the world in Europe, which was the church's perspective. The church explained everything. Um, it, it controlled the mind of Europe in the late Middle Ages. That now, with the, emer- with the development of, of today, early scientific discoveries, with the development of nature, with the, with the, with the, uh, be- the re- reacquaintanceship with nature that begins in 1300 about, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, when this Italian goes out and climbs a mountain and looks down and says, my, look at all these beautiful <laughs> mountains and everything. Right. And this, Aristotle when, coming back into and Aristotle Europe, comes back in. Yeah. So the analytical approach of... Yeah. All of this is a, is, is a huge change. And I think we don't adequately appreciate how we are, in fact, the grandchildren of that change. But from the point of view that I'm trying to suggest, what really is significant is that these came together to make it possible to begin to see the social system, the economic system, for what it really was. And Thomas Moore's book, Utopia, is one of the uh, examples, in fact, the first really important example where these things seem to come together. Hmm. Now, given the fact that this was a period of, of exploration, uh, the book takes that form. Oh, so okay. he has this he has this guy Raphael Hitlerday traveling elsewhere, right? And this elsewhere Moore calls <laughs> Utopia, which means no place. Um, but actually is a place. And what Moore does is develop in Utopia, in this other place, um, a critique of English society. Now, he's sitting there in England, and he's watching these changes take place. He's watching the fact that the commons are being taken over by, by the lords and being converted to commercial use instead of the communal use of the, of the villages. Uh, he's finding that people are being forced off the land by this into the cities. Uh, he's becoming very aware without the mask of ideology that says these people who are poor are poor because they deserve to be poor or because they're being punished. Uh, he now begins to understand that they're poor because the system has set them up. Mm. And finally, he under- he's able to understand that Christianity cannot tolerate this from his point of view because he, he, Christianity itself becomes an object to be studied, mm. not from inside, but he can see it from the outside. Uh, this is one of the advantages of this concept of the traveler as social critic. Right. So, so Hitler Day goes out and visits this, and, and, and what he writes, I mean, the book purports to be um, a critique of... Uh, English society by virtue of its describing an alternative. One of the most important themes that comes out in <clears throat> Utopia is that private property, and here we get, this is incredibly important because this issue is going to come back in even our own age and become more and more important. Private property is evil. There is something pernicious about the idea of private property. Um, 
And this is, this is a theme which will be developed by these writers from then on. Of course, um, capitalism has, develops its own ideological justification for private property and indeed projects the idea of private property as if it were a natural human phenomenon. But for, 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 for Thomas More, it was not natural. There was something quite, quite wrong with it. Um, he said, where possessions be private, it is hard and almost impossible that there the commonwealth will be justly governed and prosper, prosperously flourish. Mm. That's a very interesting sentence because he's saying that it isn't just private property that's wrong. He's saying private property is wrong because, number one, it is counter the idea of the commonwealth. So what is the commonwealth? Mm. You know, we use the word modern America, the commonwealth of Massachusetts, the commonwealth of Virginia. But in the days of, the, of, of Thomas More, the word commonwealth really did have a sense of a society in which everybody participated. Um, commonwealth. Right. That's, that's really the important. Wealth in common. Wealth in common. Yeah. That's really very important. But he links it up already at that point. He links up the idea of private property with government, mm. with power. Mm. So it isn't as if private property exists as a natural. Um, so in that sentence, it's linked to. In that sentence, yes. Now let me read, let me give it to you again. He says, "Where possession be private, it is hard and almost impossible that there the commonwealth will be justly governed yeah. and prosperously flourish." Hmm. So. What he's saying is that there is, number one, a conflict between justice and private property, which indeed, if we live in a commonwealth, that becomes fairly obviously. But moreover, it justly governed that private property inhibits the possibility of good government. Now, this idea, if if you think about it, this idea is remarkably contrary to our contemporary American yes, idea, where private property is the bedrock of democracy, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Where we, where our our purchase on the Commonwealth is that piece of the of the Commonwealth that we possess privately, right? And and Moore is saying just the opposite. And that theme of private property as inhibiting good governance mm-hmm. will be steadily developed uh, <clears throat> down until the very present day. I suppose in the 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 defense of the modern formulation would be that the private property enhances the commonwealth by way of the private pursuit. Now, is that the positive it, construal of the? It's it's obvious that Moore didn't yet understand, and and this is this is, this is important that Moore didn't yet understand the free market economy right. idea. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. So. Um, but I think in our contemporary period, we don't have perfect private property. We never have had perfect private property, and the, the claim that we do is is nonsense. Yeah, the state has the right to take private property whenever it's necessary. But um, even in the United States, but nonetheless, there's a sense in which, if you go back to the founding fathers, property, the possession of private property, is what made you social. Mm-hmm. In the political sense of the term, remember that property ownership was one of the measures of, uh, or one of the tests for people who could vote. Yes, yeah. 
<laughs> that's very significant. Yeah. Uh, and, and Moore is already a couple hundred years earlier calling this kind of thing an impression. <clears throat> Another thing that, that is very important about, uh, uh, about uh, utopia from this point of view is that Moore is very suspicious of industrialism industrialization. It's just barely getting started, but he already sees that agriculture is somehow in his mind in decline and endangered by industrialization. And he understands industrialization to mean urbanization, not just the development of machineries. That's going to come a couple hundred years later. But for him, agriculture is a natural way of life. So this then becomes the uh, a crucial point. In this period, in this 16th century, 15th, 16th century period, there comes that break between man and nature, which will reach its height in the 19th century when human beings are seen to be at war with nature, which they must overcome in order to progress. But, but Moore is already saying that agriculture, with its natural rhythms, etc., right. is, and so in utopia, agriculture is the dominant economy. Huh. And the the industrialization, urbanized industrial, industrialization, which is becoming characteristic of the cities in England, he is saying is unnatural and somehow <laughs> quite wrong. He also recognizes, and this becomes important. This is it is quite remarkable. He argues that in Utopia they have the eight day eight hour day, and they only work six days a week. <laughs> uh, well, you know, com- compared with America at the end of the nineteenth century, where where people were working 12 or 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and America in 2019 and 2020, mm. where people are working you know, 48 hours a day and 14 <laughs> days a week, um, it is quite revolutionary, yeah. Yeah. quite a revolutionary idea. So what, what he is saying is that the, the labor that is useful is the useful labor. Obviously, that raises the question, is useful for what? useful for providing the basic necessities of life. Everything else is excess. Everything else is too much. It becomes unnatural. And that's a very interesting idea because it's, we hear it all, all the time nowadays. People are complaining about they have to work too much. They they have three jobs and so forth. And so it's very important, but that he saw this at the very beginning of the dawn of capitalism Mm -hmm. becomes very interesting. Another issue that he raises is the issue of distribution, which again is one that we're, we're uh, very much aware of today. And he argues that um, distribution needs to be arranged not on the basis of the market, but on the basis of need and custom. So in Utopia, exchange between the cities and the countryside that is, between the agricultural and the industrial part of society, takes place at specific festivals huh. that are organized regularly. That's a very interesting idea and quite different from, from what we have, where commerce is, you know, again, 48 hours a day. Right. Um, but, and furthermore, that distribution has to be communistic so that you, you're... Um, since, you're, since you have already decided, since utopians understand that you need to produce enough to survive, enough to live a decent life, 
And he has it all set up. He describes the countryside, describes the towns, and, and they're all about leading a comfortable life, not an excessive life, mm. but a comfortable life. And since on the basis of eight hours a day, six days a week, you can produce enough for that purpose, there then is no need to have anything more than a barter system from which people to which people contribute according to how much they produce and take out how much they need. So this is the beginning of the idea, or one of the earliest expressions of the idea, that given abundance, you don't need money, you don't need exchange for profit-making. In fact, you don't exchange for profit-making. Why should people make a profit on the food that other people need to eat? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the idea. To be sure, you, you have to have capital to produce certain things, but you don't need to make a profit on it. And again, in Utopia, given the fact that distribution is based upon this communist idea, not communist in the, in the Marxist right. sense of the term, of course, this communist idea, uh, poverty then simply doesn't exist uh-huh. because people naturally work and naturally take what they need. Right. So there, there is no poverty. There is no poverty. Um, money is not needed. The hoarding of gold and silver is not needed. Uh, none of these things in which we place so much importance are part of the uh, are part of the uh, of, of this uh, of this existence in Utopia. Now he understands still the importance of family. So people in Utopia have their own private homes, but they're all very much similar and are meant to be serviceable. They're meant to be utilitarian. They're not display. Right. I don't buy, buy, if I'm a utopian, I don't buy a bigger house uh, to show how wealthy I am because nobody's wealthy, nor is anybody poor. So it, it is a kind of, um, um, egalitarian society mm-hmm. without equal being defined in any absolute terms. The aim of all of this, oh, I, one other point has to be mentioned, that, that Moore was extremely, <clears throat> placed extreme importance on the idea of education. Mm, right. That the way in which utopia um, could exist, what was absolutely necessary for utopia to exist was education. Now, assuming that all utopians have the same sets of values, which is a cultural phenomenon, then education be- could become very practical. And indeed, in utopia... All the children learned agriculture. They learned basic sciences like geometry, mathematics, things of that sort. Um, Children who were more capable than others in certain areas were encouraged to pursue those areas Uh as their contribution to society. But the, the difference between utopia and us today from this perspective, our understanding of education, it seems to me is that the the utopians assume, in Moore's book, the existence of a common culture and therefore can have a practical education. Mm-hmm. The error that we're making today, in my opinion, is that we're assuming a practical education more and more. We want to educate our kids to compete. We don't pay much attention to the creation of the common culture. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think that's a very, very important uh, mm. um and finally, the, the um, objective of all of this, the purpose of life for the, 
for the utopians was was what, and he says it very openly, was happiness. And, and by happiness, he doesn't mean ecstatic joy forever, <laughs> right. but contentment. That the, the people of Utopia live contented lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, taken as a whole, this book provides a kind of anti-social critique of the culture that Thomas More himself right. lives in. Uh-huh. Do you think it's um, this partly just about the dynamics of utopian thinking? Um, because it seems like you look at this two ways. He's showing us uh, two extreme ways, showing us what, what's possible. We could live as these people do. Or you could see it as it's holding up a kind of mirror to show us who we in fact are. That we I think are... it's, 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 it's one and a half. <laughs> I mean, the second point, it's showing up, <clears throat> it's holding up a mirror to show us what we are. Mm-hmm. And as you'll see as we go along today and tomorrow, many of these writers, they change. The content of their writing changes because the content of their cultures has changed. Right. They are very responsive to the criticism they're very they're they're critically responsive to their own cultures, uh, so that's number one. And number two, I don't think that that any of them are foolish enough. And I don't read much of this literature as being foolish, although it does give rise eventually in our own age to some foolish literature. But by and large, it's an expression of hope and yearning rather than of a plan for a reality. Uh-huh. Uh, this, I think this is a very, very important point because <clears throat> I don't think the utopians or later the Marxists um, who I think are, are more utopian in a strange way. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I think that later the, the, the utopians are expressive of a countercultural uh, or of, a, of, a, of another cultural uh terrain than the one inhabited by what we see uh, as we study history. Uh, They are not content. Discontent is an extremely important human emotion. Let, let Let me think about that out loud for a moment. We have a very complex view of discontent today. So we have whole sciences, psychology, uh, clinical psychology. Um, We have whole philosophies, pop philosophies, institutions, hospitals of a certain kind, Uh, movements, I'm thinking back to Esalen and and all these movements, which are aimed to diminish our discontent. As if discontent is a uh, something wrong with us to have discontent. Yeah. It's, some, it's a blemish. Right. You have to treat it. I think in the world of, 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 of socialism, utopians as well as later, uh, discontent was a signifier of something being wrong. Mm. Not a blemish to be removed, right. but a signifier of something to be wrong. Therefore, you had to analyze the society you were living in to figure out where what right. the source of that discontent was, number one. And number two, discontent was a force, 
an energy to be used to change society mm-hmm. in a certain direction. Yep. Now, you may not be aware of that direction. So I don't think that Thomas More really believes that utopia is the goal that he wants to achieve. Yeah. But it's part of the instrumentality for change. Right. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, it reminds me of even just that the phrase we've used in the past of ameliorative capitalism, that addressing our discontents in the modern way you just described are ameliorations of of symptoms being created by right. by capitalism right. versus a prod to solve the fundamental the, change yes, of this, capitalism. What's causing right. those, yeah, those exactly, sufferings. Exactly. Yeah. So even even if we think of, of the individual in in our contemporary society, um, if I take the emotion of discontent or of resentment um, I can use those emotions very positively for change. They can get me out on the street corner uh, demonstrating against political evil, right. for yes. example. Yeah. So, right. uh, you know, I think this is, a, this is an extremely important thing for us to think about, that, that indeed we should be experiencing discontent and resentment if we want to change society. Yep. I, I also have to say, I mean, you've been saying this all along, but it's just clear in this little picture you've drawn of the Thomas More's Utopia Project of how absolutely crucial education is because we we can't that I think we can it's easy to fall into this idea that there are systems for living and one's going to fit us better than another and we argue about which but we have to become the people who fit that system that that the acculturation into living a certain way is crucial. It, uh, you can't just slap a system on human beings without those human beings. That's absolutely being right. Brought, if you yeah. believe in so, if you believe in change, so here's a here's a, a an additional dimension. If you believe that change is necessary, you may believe that change is necessary, but not necessarily know what direction that change will go. Mm-hmm. But change is inevitable. We change all the time. Nature is changing. We have, you know, change is, a, is, is part of the response mechanisms and so forth and so on. We need perhaps to think about educating our children for change rather than for stability. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why um, so many people, when they get up to a certain age, become depressed <laughs> is because they think they've been educated to think that life is stable. That life is the way. Mm. So they're always going to be 40 or 29 right. or whatever age, <laughs> right. right? But eventually right. you get to be 80. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a television, one of my favorite television shows last night. <laughs> and uh, this woman is complaining. She says, oh, I can't deal with my life anymore. And, uh, and her boyfriend says to her, you know, the trouble with you, with you is that life changes and you get to be a certain age where your children move out and where you don't look as you did when you were 20 and your breasts begin to sag and you just have to learn that life is always changing and to be into the process of change. And it was so true, right? It was a simple... <laughs> what show is this? It's called Dicta. It's a, it's a Danish, a Danish <laughs> huh. mystery program, but it was, it's full of, of good, uh, good insights, uh-huh. very, very positive insights. And I think that's, that's, that's part of the problem. If you think about advertisement... In, uh, in our society today. 
we have a, it presents us very powerfully with a constant image of youth. Mm. You don't find uh, um, many advertisements for old men and old women and, and their clothes. Right. It's always the clothes right. of young right. people, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so our society, our culture is aimed at trying to uh, eliminate change. Yeah. And I want to argue, and I will argue in, in, through this, is that uh, socialist culture is about change mm. and learning mm -hmm. how to change, even if you don't know exactly what right. direction you're changing in. You do see old people in pharmaceutical commercials. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, they do, but, but that's precisely the point. Right? Right, exactly. There's something wrong, you're going to get sick, and therefore, <laughs> yeah. right? That's just the point. <laughs> What, you know, I, I've talked to you enough about these things that I think I know your – well, I know that you you always want to encourage the um, transformation in the deepest, widest sense. But what do you think of efforts people make to transform very local communities when, when a little community tries to go on a barter system or you take over education by just doing it yourself and re redesigning it for a smaller community. Well, you know, that, that poses a very, that really is an important question because in our contemporary world, there's a strong tendency to go local. Right, yes, and, exactly. Uh, that's become a kind of motto. And in my opinion, and, and I, this is going to upset some people, uh, that's a um, that's that's um, hiding our heads in the sand and mm. or what's the expression pulling wool over your eyes? What's yes, yeah. pull the wool over. I don't think you do something that something like yourself. that. <laughs> um, I think the idea of going local and of local change as being primary worked probably uh, very well. And in, in, in either the next time we talk or the time after that, depending on <laughs> yeah. where we go, we'll talk about experimental communities. Uh, and yes, it did work. Right. In the 19th century, it did work. Um, hmm. That is to say, people did try to, try to create small local experimental communities. But the, the simple fact of the matter is that the world has changed. We don't exist. We, don't, we may live our lives locally, but we don't define our lives locally. Yeah. Right. So I may live here in my hometown the way somebody on the other side of the country lives in their hometown, uh, about the same income, about the same level standard of living and so forth and so on. Uh, but, the, but our lives are controlled way beyond our community. You know, uh, if you have an electric power outage your your house your town is on a grid that is controlled by some vague entity somewhere else right and uh, it's not locally controlled and you're unless you have a, a rare town which they own <coughs> their own yeah uh, generators etc so our lives are lived not locally yeah in fact and that's why i think it's it's a fake. To say let's change locally leaves the political battlefield to those who yes. understand yeah. Yeah. the difference. Now, That's one of the problems uh, with our education system. Look here in America. We have a 1,001, I don't remember the number, I think it's something like 3,000, uh, although I may have made that up out of, out of my head, uh, school districts, each one which is a little bit different from the other with a little different requirements, different textbooks and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. 
uh, how do you wield, how do you compose, how do you create a common American culture when there isn't a common curriculum yeah. all over the country for the students to follow? It's interesting that when we think of a common curriculum, when the federal government intervenes, it has to do with math and science. Yeah. But and what skills. about yeah. pardon me? And skills. And skills. Yeah. But not about literature or culture or yeah. music or the things that yeah. or are common what, value. Common values. We don't <laughs> yeah. do that. Yeah. And and I think that's one of the reasons we're in some of the difficulties we have today. Yeah. It may be that we don't want to it may well be that one of the questions political theory today ought to talk about is that the size of some of these countries is just too big. Yeah, right. Maybe America, China, Russia, India, et cetera, ought to be broken up into I'm all for California independence. Yeah, So you have more. You have yeah, more. Well, I, more wanna, right? I, I, yeah. I want to use another uh, example to, today to show this uh, the way in which uh, the society you live in changes very strongly. Uh, the kind of imagining you have about these things. So the next one I would like to mention is is uh, Bacon's uh, book, New Atlantis, which is written a generation mm. after um, Thomas Moore. I don't know it at all. Well, that's why I'm mentioning it. <laughs> um, so um, in, the, in the, say, half century between the publication of, not quite half century, between the publication of Utopia and Bacon's, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, you had a tremendous development in England of math and science and so forth. All of a sudden, people began to get very interested in these uh, new ways of measuring things and of thinking about the world. Um, and moreover, with the rise of Protestantism, which, remember, Thomas More is in the period of Henry VIII. All of a sudden, you get Protestantism. Henry VIII leaves the church, and Protestantism becomes becomes quite uh, quite more important. Um, what had been a kind of general idea about the Commonwealth that I mentioned with Thomas More, uh -huh. the communist idea with Thomas More, which has roots deep in Christian thought. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think back to Christ was a poor man, and blessed are the meek for they shall, but that. That the power of the church as the unifying institution supporting that particular moral position begins to disintegrate in the generation right after, um, right after Thomas More and Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Bacon is in the next generation. And communism has lost the, the sanction of the church, if you will. Communism understood in the sense of the commonwealth that right. I've been talking about. Um, the people who feel discontent and resentment are no longer able to find within the church yeah. a justification for their position. So they begin to move into what we later will call the nonconformist churches, radical fringes. This is where the idea of radicalism, as we understand it, uh, begins to develop. So that the, and furthermore, the idea of, of the individual begins to develop very strongly. I think, I, I think that if we could write a history 
uh, modern history with all the modern tools of analysis we have of the emergence of the idea of the individual as such, yeah. that it would be in this period that the individual uh, would emerge most, uh, most sharply. And this is all reflected in Bacon's New Atlantis. So, for example, Bacon is no longer arguing for communism in property. What Bacon now understands, you know, a generation later, is that it's knowledge, not property, that's important. So he argues in New Atlantis for a kind of communism in knowledge. So he has set up in New Atlantis, again, another place, still in the travel mode. He has it set up where, where knowledge is produced publicly. You have these houses. I think there were eight or 12 knowledge centers, if you will, what we might call knowledge centers, in his uh, New Atlantis, where knowledge was being produced publicly and it was available publicly. The idea of, a, uh, of making money out of knowledge was something hmm. wrong, right? But knowledge, not property, was what was important. But knowledge in, like, an encyclopedic sense? Yeah, knowledge in how you do things. How do you Uh make things? How do you do things? Yeah. I might make an invention. Right. And and that invention has a social significance, and it should be for society as a whole. What right do I have to then, you know, we would argue, well, it's your creativity, your imagination. Get a patent. But Bacon is trying to argue, no, that knowledge is itself socially created Uh and a socially creative function. Right. Yeah. And that's and that knowledge and that came very much from the growth of science. The idea that science was shared, that science was not a private property. Uh-huh. Which is which, as I said this comes in between I think comes in between Moore and Bacon. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a very important idea. Mm. Yeah. So that's the that's the um that's the, that's the part exact, of the communal, communal, the Commonwealth part of Atlantis is, is knowledge, knowledge right, in common. Is knowledge. Now, we today, is, this is an interesting idea because today we talk about knowledge society. Yeah. But how do we talk? What does that mean, a knowledge society? By and large, in our age, knowledge society means a society where the knowledge is the primary means of production. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So algorithms and all right. that kind of stuff. But what Bacon is trying to say is that knowledge is the primary means of life. It's, it's, it's what you really, it's what right. makes the commonwealth. Right. We all share knowledge. Right. Knowledge cannot be private property. And I think that, so we can, I could use Bacon, I like to think of Bacon, um, to highlight this idea that we live today in a, right. in a world in which knowledge is property. Uh-huh. Is uh, now it just I'm very curious about Atlantis now the new Atlantis, so are there are there social impacts of this? Well, of course, and, and so there's a with knowledge, more equality and with uh, knowledge and with statistics, which yeah. is what he's beginning to suggest. You have a different basis for organizing society, right? So it's it's in this context that one could talk about, and this is a, an expression I haven't thought about until this minute: the morality of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So what do I mean by that? Now, let me think. What do I mean by that? Um, I can organize society if I understand that it is a fundamental principle. We're going to talk about this in the future. It's a fundamental principle that human beings should not exploit other human beings. 
And we have to be ruthless in our definition of exploitation. None of this capitalist nonsense about saying, well, you know, I'm not exploiting you. That's the return on capital. Right. Right. We have to break through that. That's the value of this kind of thinking. Um, power differential, what, what Thomas Moore points out, right, that private property means a difference in power. Yeah. Right? It's a form of exploitation, political exploitation. So if we start out and we say, well, how would I use this new knowledge? How would I use statistics to arrive at the description of a society in which equality more or less reigned? Yeah. Um, I'm in a very different position than I am if I only have moral principles and nothing else. I can actually measure. I can actually say, you know, we can figure out how much labor it takes to, call, to, yeah. to do this yeah. or that or the other thing. Yeah. And it opens up a much more realistic way of planning from our perspective uh -huh. than the equally powerful but less precise instruments that, say, Thomas More would have had at his disposal uh -huh. Uh -huh. in Utopia. And so is this just a... a um, a kind of fantasy of the promise of knowledge for Bacon, or was he using it to criticize? Well, I think he session? is. I think, in fact, yeah. he is. He's come. He 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 is in the center of the knowledge-producing culture of his time, and uh, that's why he writes differently than Moore produced. There was an explosion, the beginning of an explosion of knowledge, and the question is how to use that to reform. An unjust society, yeah, yeah. and we don't think about it in those terms. We, when we think about statistics, yeah. what do we think about today? When you think about the social use of statistics, what do you think about today? Well, we can figure out something about uh, distribution of this or that, or uh, we measure crime statistically. <coughs> right. It's very right. interesting this idea of measuring crime statistically. It can, it, it's useful because it tells us there's more crime in that town than in another town. Yeah. Uh, of course, we don't need the statistics to know that. Yes. The people themselves <laughs> know it. But it, it provides a layer of cushioning. Yeah. Right? But the statistics don't tell us what to do about it because yeah. we're not cultivating that part of our, right. the moral component of the use of statistics we don't pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, I think this came up in a, a discussion a while back, but it's reminding me of the, you know, there's a, Nobel Prize winning physicist not too far from here who is very critical of um, how much knowledge of physics is being tied up in patents that, that he thinks um, the battery problem, for example, for our energy needs, if knowledge were freed up from its company mm -hmm. control right. and available to everyone to put to use, we would be solving a lot of problems. That Listen, are that's an old socialist idea. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the story that I was brought up with, one of the many stories, uh, somewhere somebody has a reusable match. What? A re a re all you do is you strike it and blow it out and strike it again. <laughs> and we don't need to be always producing <laughs> right. more matches, you know. <laughs> a good social society, everyone has one match. Right, I mean, right. Not, you know, I mean, that's, that's obviously an exaggeration. But the idea is right. Yes, yeah. And then needless to say, the universe, the change, change of the university culture in general is related the, to this. Exactly. And one of the big issues in universities is not just the production of knowledge, but who owns the knowledge yeah. being produced. And that's yeah. a constant source yeah. of struggle. Yeah. The one I work at, 
makes you sign a paper that says really? uh, oh, we we own what you come up with. Um, no, I, I think these are these are very important discussions to have, and we're not having them. Yeah, mind you, we 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 may debate whether what the conditions ought to be, but the morality of the privatization of knowledge is uh, what we need to be talking yeah, about. Yeah. That's what Bacon is raising. Yeah. All right, we're at we're at our usual show length. How we do on your notes? Oh, we just keep going next time. We'll just keep going. <laughs> you know where we'll pick what yeah, keep going yeah. means? Mm-hmm. Oh, and you'll remember. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Big Mike, and thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Shareable World. To find out more about this podcast, visit us at ashareableworld.com.